I'd like to start out this episode with a quote about Dave Van Romp from Tom Waits. Let's be honest, we could all stand a few more Tom Waits quotes in our life. Here goes. In the engine of the New York folk scene, shoveling coal into the furnace, one big man rules. Dog-faced, roustabout songster. Blues man, Dave Van Rock. Long may he howl. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Elijah Wald. Elijah is a musician, author, and cultural historian. And you can find out everything you need to know about Elijah at ElijahWald.com. Some of you might remember my buddy Ben Schaefer from episode 115. He told us some Allen Ginsberg stories. Ben had contacted me quite a few years ago and said that he'd been working on a memoir of Dave Von Rock, and he sent me a copy of it. And it's called The Mayor of McDougal Street, and it was written by Dave Von Rock with Elijah Wald. And I really enjoyed it. It's a great little time capsule of the late 50s, early 60s in Greenwich Village. But I was lucky enough to get to meet up with Elijah in Knoxville in a hotel room, and he was nice enough to, to share some Von Rock stories. I hope you guys enjoy this, and I highly recommend that you pick up the book, The Mayor of McDougal Street. I also recommend that you go to Elijah's website, ElijahWald.com. He's doing song biographies, and last time I looked, it's about 130. He's doing one a day. A lot of good stuff to see there. Here's Elijah Wald. I actually met Van Ronk when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14. I'd seen him live, and I, I was completely blown away and was raving to a, a family friend about it, and she turned out to be real close friends with him. So the next time he was in town, she introduced me. We all went out to dinner after the gig in Chinatown, and he collected primitive art, and my dad collected primitive art, so we got to talking about that, and and then I just started going down every time he was in town. That was in Boston, Cambridge. And uh, I decided that I wanted to take guitar lessons from him. And so as soon as I finished high school, I, I went for one year of college at, in New York just so I could take guitar lessons from Dave Van Ronk and showed up on his doorstep and, and did weekly lessons for, I don't know, eight, nine months, um, except by about month two, my lesson... Um, I would be the last lesson of the day and we'd do the lesson and then he'd cook dinner and then we'd open the first bottle of whiskey and then at 11.30, just before the liquor stores closed, he'd send me out for the second bottle of whiskey. And, <laughs> and that was once a week for nine months. 
He wasn't all that big on back when. I mean, if I asked him about back when, he would talk back when. But no, he would talk. He was the best read human being I've ever met. I mean, I've now touched on academia a bunch in the last few years, and I keep waiting to meet somebody as generally well-educated as Dave Van Rock. He left school when he was 13 or 14, but he read intensively. He read history. He read everything and somehow retained it all, and he could speak at length on any subject and did. Where did he live when you would go over? And what was Sheridan his... Square. He, he was in Greenwich Village. He'd always been in Greenwich. As, as soon as he left Queens and Brooklyn, I guess he was briefly on the Lower East Side and then moved to the village and never wanted to sit. You know, had his life been perfect, he would never have set foot outside the village except occasionally to go to, you know, Paris or Japan. But I mean, yeah, no, his, his as far as the United States went, you know, he liked San Francisco. He liked, you know, being in nice places now and then. But basically, he liked being in Greenwich Village. Can you describe his apartment at all, just for somebody? It uh, doesn't take a lot of time. It was tiny. I mean, you got to understand, he, di- he had not come out of the 60s in particularly good shape economically. And so his apartment was, you, you walk, um, there was a hall from the door lined with um, paperback science fiction novels, a tiny kitchen on the right, which at that point still had the Spaghetti National Monument where he would test spaghetti by throwing it against the wall and seeing if it stuck and he would not remove it. (laughs) Um, Then you got into the living and dining room, which had this huge couch that he would occupy and a coffee table and three chairs facing it. And then this round dining room table behind it. Uh, No, not behind, but I mean behind the chairs in front of the couch. And if you were coming in the door on your left, there were more bookshelves, uh, the cabinet with the comic book collection, great collection of early Walt Disney comic books that he sold the next year. Um, And some records, not a huge amount of records. And his primitive art, he didn't have a huge amount, but some really nice pieces. We're not talking American primitive. It was, um, you know, African, uh, New Guinea, big New Guinea bird. In fact, anybody who wants to see this stuff, if you see the movie Inside Lewin Davis, when he goes uptown to the professor's apartment uptown, the primitive art on the professor's walls is stuff that was in fact rented from Dave's widow to dress the set as a way of sort of throwing a little more cash towards her. So those are Dave's pieces in the movie. And, you know, honestly, Dave has been associated a lot with Reverend Gary Davis because Reverend Davis was certainly his single greatest influence on guitars, certainly after Josh White. You know, Dave was never actually a student of Reverend Davis. He just, you know, would overlap him a lot when when Gary Davis was playing in the village or, you know, when they were at festivals and stuff like that. I think I think Dave went up to Gary's apartment a couple of times, but mostly he overlapped Gary in the clubs because, you know, there was a period there where everybody was playing in a few clubs on McDougal Street and, you know, hanging out in between gigs and, and also just going down there. I mean, uh, Wavy Gravy, who back then was named Hugh Romney and who was a hip comedian, 
was the MC at the Gaslight, and the Reverend Davis married him to his wife at the Gaslight Cafe. So, you know, it, it was sort of a community. It was always club gigs. I mean, Dave was always playing, you know, coffee houses and bars. If it was up to him, it would be bars. Um, Dave liked his audience to be able to have a drink. You preferred um, that to a theater? Yeah. Yeah, no, Dave, Dave liked being a saloon singer. Dave saw himself in the tradition of people like, you know, Peggy Lee, Mildred Bailey, you know, cabaret saloon singers. That's his feeling was, you know, he, he was never a folky. Um, what he listened to was jazz. Uh, he had a different, you know, he had a different taste in material. He wasn't until late in his life. I mean, his last couple albums actually were albums of standards, but mostly he wasn't doing that. But those were the rooms he liked to work, and those were the audiences he liked to work for. He liked a room full of jazz fans with drinks in front of him. I mean, you have to understand that Greenwich Village, like anything, you know, they were all 18, 19, 20, early 20s. So, you know, it was very clicky. And um, Dave's crowd would have been Dave, uh, Tom Paxton, Patrick Skye, and a lot of writers. Lawrence Block, if anybody's read the Bernie Rodenbar mysteries or the Matt Scudder mysteries. I mean, Larry Block was, was a very close friend. Um, I mean, Dave liked hanging out with writers. He wasn't real clicky with musicians. I mean, he, he and Dylan were close when Dylan started out, but as soon as Dylan became the young prince with his courtiers around him, um, Dave got the hell away from that. And then there was sort of another crowd around Fred Neal, which would have had like Karen Dalton and Peter Stamfel and a few other people. And, and I mean, Dave liked Peter in particular a lot because they were science fiction nuts. I mean, you got to understand the music was part of it. But if you were looking at Dave's friends and not just Dave's friends, it was true of a lot of people in that generation. The three poles were traditional music, left wing politics and sci fi. And Dave very much his friends were from those cliques. So, I mean, Peter Stamfel, though everybody thinks of Peter as a musician, Peter and Dave would have been more sci fi friends than music friends. You know, it was a lot of pulp writers. It was a lot of magazines. It was a lot of magazine stories. I mean, Stamfel is, the, you know, you want to talk sci-fi, talk to Stamfel. I mean, he's, he's a walking encyclopedia of that world. But Dave was like that, too. As with the old-time music world, I mean, part of the joy was that the guys you really loved were not the guys that everybody's heard of. Um, so, you know, they all had their favorites who were better writers than the guys everybody's heard of. It, the, I mean, that's how young people set themselves apart. I mean, there is the football team and the cheerleaders, and then there are the weirdos who set themselves apart by knowing stuff that the football team and the cheerleaders don't know about. And that's who we are. That's who we always are. And I mean, it can be sci-fi, it can be whatever, but but it's all about having your your obscure and better knowledge. And, and you know, there was also the left-wing politics. I mean, Dave was very, very deep in Trotskyist politics. He was actually a leader of a faction. I mean, not absolute top echelon, but, but very much, you know, sort of on the organizing committee of, of what became the Workers' League in a split from the Socialist Workers' Party. 
So, you know, there was a lot going on. It wasn't all music. Boy, I wish Dave had been more of an influence on the culture in general. I think um, Dave's probably, I, I would say probably that Dave's greatest influence was as a guitar player. That, you know, there were generations of players who came up playing Dave's stuff. Um, most of them not known for going on playing Dave's stuff. I mean, Dylan, of course, obviously learned a lot of guitar from Dave. But so did a lot of other people. I mean, you know, people like Jackson Brown or whatever. You know, everybody grew up on Dave's stuff. And Dave was, there was a moment in the, you know, 58, 59, 60, 61, 62, 63, um, when Dave was the finger-picking guitar player in the world. You know, and, and everybody, you know, you learned Freight Train and you learned... Uh, maybe a Mississippi John Hurt thing, and you learned some of Dave Van Ronk's things. And he then was the one person from that world who glommed on to the singer-songwriters without really becoming one himself. So, you know, there are a certain number of people who, if they didn't first hear Joni Mitchell through Dave, which quite a few people did, or through Tom Rush, um... It certainly, you know, her, it gave her a legitimacy with a certain hardcore folky world that Dave was doing, Joni, Leonard Cohen, whatever. Um, but no, I think his main thing was as a guitarist. And then, of course, in the 80s, he sort of was the one person from that generation who was really welcoming the young people who were coming in. Um, not so much Suzanne Vega, though her too, but Bill Morrissey, David Massingill. I mean, these are not necessarily household names, but there was a generation of young people who came into the village. And Dave was very accessible and very nurturing and very helpful to all of them. The mayor of McDougal Street thing, actually, that was back in the early 60s. I mean, he was holding court, you know, by the time Dylan showed up in 1961, Dave was holding court. He did the weekly uh, hoot or whatever they called it by then, what we now would call an open mic at the Gaslight Cafe. And the Gaslight was by that time the coffee house room. Uh, Folk City was the next stage up because they had a, a liquor license so they could pay something more. Um, and they weren't in the heart of the village. Folk City was still out and a few blocks away. And there was the Kettle of Fish bar upstairs from the Gaslight, which is where everybody hung out, you know, because you couldn't get a drink in the coffee houses. And Dave basically held court there. Who coined that term? Um, it was the bartender at the Kettle of Fish who called him the mayor of McDougal Street. Because, I mean, he held forth that way. I mean, Dave, you know, Dave was, if he was in a room, he was who people turned to, to settle arguments or whatever else. I mean, Dave had, first of all, I mean, he was just physically imposing. I mean, he was six foot three and 200 pounds, and he knew everything. I mean, he was an, just an intensely well-educated and wise person. And he had this gift for saying things beautifully and, and in funny ways. I mean, when I became a newspaper guy, 
if I had a story that I just needed a good quote for. Um, on almost any subject, you could always call Dave, and he was always good for a good quote. I mean, I remember just, I don't know if this is going to be useful to you, but when, for example, um, Ayana Elliott, Rambling Jack Elliott's daughter, did the, the documentary on him, I remember I came by Dave's place and she had just done this, I don't know, two-hour interview with Dave about, about Ramblin' Jack. And I said, so how did it go? And Dave said, oh, I gave her the closing quote for the movie. <laughs> um, I think she, in fact, had one quote after his. But he knew, I mean, the quote was, um, if Jack had, uh, had stayed married to your mom and had stayed home with you, um, you'd probably be happier and Jack would probably be happier and the world would have had one more happy family and it wouldn't have had Ramblin' Jack Elliot and whether that would be better or worse is just something you're going to have to sort out for yourself. It was like, whoa! But I mean, that's, but that's the sort of thing he could do. Oh, that was Dave. Um, Dave wanted to write a book about the village and he glommed on to me as somebody because I was by then making my living as a writer and he glommed on to me as someone who could do it with him. And the plan was to do a book about the village scene roughly 1955 to 1965. And Dave would be the authorial voice and the first person. And I would work with him and we'd pull it together and it would not be about Dave. It would have, you know, I mean, he would be the figure, he, you know, it would be called the mayor of McDougal Street. And it would, but it would be a much, much broader view than the book ended up being. I mean, he wanted to have more of the jazz scene. He wanted the painters. He wanted the writers. I mean, he really wanted to talk about what that world was like in that time, not just the folk revival. Um, but the problem was uh, he also wanted to get an advance that would allow him to simply take a year to stay in Greenwich Village and not go on the road and to work on the book, and we never got the money. Um, we actually got a pretty good offer, um, but not quite good enough. And so I ended up stuck with it because he died on me, and I didn't want to let it go. And I mean, we had some bits and pieces he had written and I just called in every interview I could find. And I had done a couple interviews with him. And, you know, I, I had all of those years of sitting on his couch and late into the night. So I had, you know, I had his voice very much in my head and it, it was a book I could pull together and had to. How did you hear about his passing? Oh, I was in touch all the way through. I mean, it, the last time I went to see him, he actually, he wouldn't let anybody see him when he was sick. So he actually, he, he was dying of cancer and he came home and called me to come down to the village. And by the time I came down, he was already feeling sick again and did not come out of his bedroom and I didn't see him. But, you know, I, I was like in the front room um, and within, I don't know, I want to say the next couple of days, but maybe it was a week he was dead. Um, it was one of these stupid situations where, um, he had six months, which they maybe could have got to nine months with chemo and nobody said to him, but maybe you don't want to do this if you're feeling good this week. And so they gave him chemo and he was dead in a week, you know, or in two days or whatever. Um, 
I mean, I think he might have made the choice to do that anyway, but it, it, it was it was late by then. You know, he'd been smoking 18 packs of cigarettes a day since he was 12. And the problem was when it when it turned out that that wasn't what we, it wasn't lung cancer, but they couldn't do anything because they couldn't stabilize his breathing enough. Yeah, the book came out and we pretty soon heard that somebody had optioned the book and we assumed it was just, you know, like History Channel or something like that. Um, And I don't know, I think it was because the option was running out and they had to renew the option. And then the story just broke that the Coens were doing this movie that was loosely based on Dave Van Ronk. And I called my agent and said, is this us? And He said, I don't know. And he called the people who had optioned the book, which had been a third party middleman. And they said, yep, that's you. Um, So that's basically the story. I mean, the the Cones did pay. um, I mean, most of the money goes to Dave's widow, Andrea. But I get a piece and it was and, and the Cones treated us well. And I have to say, since a lot of Dave's friends and fans got irate about this, um, we both liked the movie and we both liked the fact that it was not about Dave. Um, had it been about Dave, there would have, I'm sure, been all sorts of things that made us cranky about it. But it wasn't about Dave, so it was all fine. <laughs> <laughs> and it got a lot of people interested in his name and it got a lot of people to go out and get his music, all of which got back in print due to the movie. And the check's cleared, and it's all good. That's great to hear. Yeah. Think, what do you think Dave would have thought of the, of the movie? Um, I think Dave would have thought that the check cleared. <laughs> no, I mean, Dave, Dave felt very nuts and bolts about that sort of thing. It's their movie. They treated him right. And... History, you know, as, as Dave used to say, you know, the, the world will little note nor long remember anything. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Elijah for meeting up with me in a hotel room in Knoxville, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about Elijah at ElijahWald.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. 
Thanks for giving a damn.